Now, our Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity once again to meet and to discuss how it is that you shape a child's life and the stewardship that you've given us as parents and then those who serve even as grandparents and in other capacities as they care for children. We thank you for the high premium that your word places on children, that you set them apart in a special way, that they are a unique blessing to your heart, and may they be to ours as well. And so tonight we ask as we open your word that our hearts would be open to the truth that is found here, that we might rightly divide it in our minds and hearts and then exercise it in our homes where we are ministering to these children. Thank you for the great gift that they are. Now help me tonight, Father, and God, my thoughts and my words, and I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you happen to be here for the first time, this is Biblical Parenting 102, and tonight we come to the fifth session, the fifth handout, and we want to jump right in on page two. Tonight the focus is how do you teach your child life skills? really preparing them for the time that they leave your home. Just by way of introduction, God called Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, Genesis 1, verse 28, by bearing children and raising them, certainly in a less than perfect world. Like the first family, we too have to raise our children in a sinful, sin-stained world. The Bible tells us in Psalm 127 that children are a gift of the Lord, and as gifts loaned to us from God, we have the responsibility as stewards, with God's help, to raise them and prepare them to someday leave our home. So they're not ours, they're God's, and we are preparing them someday to leave our homes. We, have, we who have been given stewardship over their souls have to learn how to navigate the course between raising children who are hopelessly naive about the sinful ways of the world versus children who are shaped by the world. So those are the kind of the boundaries and how do we navigate those two extremes. Uh, Point three, they will be shaped by the world either by a poor example given through their parents or by a failure by the parents to guard them, to guard their children from evil. So we can fall and contribute to worldliness if uh, we are negligent in protecting them or if we are giving them a very poor example to follow. Uh, We are called to protect our children while at the same time instructing them as to how they can exist and thrive in this fallen world. So we can't ignore the world around us. Uh, We have to teach them how to face this world. We want to be able to prepare our children to live in this world such that when they leave home, they are not in total ignorance over the way the world works. That's part of the preparation process. They need to know how they can guard their own hearts from evil, and hopefully we have set that example, while at the same time knowing how to function as good representatives of Christ. Parents and children alike are called by God to heed Romans 16, 19, which tells us to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So Paul says, I'll have you to be wise about the things that are good and innocent to those things that are evil. Interestingly, while Romans 16, 19 has many applications, in the prior verse, Romans 16, 18, 
the Apostle Paul points out that false teachers are apt to lead astray those who are doctrinally naive for not being grounded in the faith. I um, carried a bunch of books here, but I left my Bible. But uh, this is a Bible that I am going to suggest among many. And uh, this happens to be the New King James Version, if you wonder what I'm reading from uh, tonight. But let me just read Romans 16 in those few verses that um, I've just highlighted, verses 16 and 18. Here it is. Let's see. Where is the 16th chapter in this Bible? There it is. They've got so many notes. This is a, a study Bible for kids, uh, one of, of a few that I suggest. Paul the Apostle writes, for those who are such, talking about uh, people that we should avoid. In fact, let me back it up a verse. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So there are people who are to be avoided. It's what we typically refer to as biblical separation. And there are a number of passages through the New Testament where we don't separate on secondary issues that are not a test of fellowship. Sometimes Christians get bent out of shape over all kinds of just small things. And they ride that horse and they create division and it has very little to do with godliness and our sanctification process. But there are some issues that do, and some issues that deal with our salvation process. And so when there are teachers who come into the church or individuals who come into the church that are teaching error, they are to be avoided. For, he says, those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, themselves. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So the context of that verse is interesting. So let me draw a few uh, principles from that. Again, nine, naive Christians are those who are untaught and unlearned in the Bible, and so they are not wise to the way that Satan works in this world. In this context, false teachers who walk in the church. And this is why there's uh, so much heartache that is running today in evangelicalism, all kinds of um, uh, you know, controversy. Charisma magazine came out just a few weeks ago slandering a man of God, Dr. John MacArthur, I mean, it's been a magazine that is on the side of wacko for a couple of decades, and that they put all these, um, I don't know, stock and visions and dreams and voices from God, even that song that we just sang. Now, Matt would teach them the biblical context, but somebody could take that song, and we need to listen to God. And so you have a Sarah Young, and she says, hmm, I need to listen to God, and I need to get my little journal and write out what God is saying to me. And she puts it in the first person, like, thus saith the Lord. That's what Beth Moore is doing and a number of other people. That's very dangerous. That's way beyond the bound of Scriptures. And we'll study this when we dig a little bit further into the 22nd chapter of the Revelation. So there's all kinds of error that is entering into the church 
Um, someone called me today in reference to the crew ministry. And many of you know I love Campus Crusade, as it was once called. I worked for them for 12 and a half years. But it's going down the wrong road. And at their national staff training this year, they had women pastors who were teaching over men. One, there were women, not just women, but women pastors who were teaching. And uh, they were introducing uh, an errant form of social justice, which is not really anything new. It goes back to the 19th century, Walter Rauschenbusch was a liberal theologian who propagated what's called the social gospel, that the gospel that we are to preach is to change society, to make it a better place to live. But that's not the gospel we're to preach. The gospel we are to preach is the death, burial, and the resurrection. That changes lives. But they're using some of these new modern tools that have been introduced into the evangelical church that are very, very destructive. And, and people who are naive and untaught very easily buy into these things. And so naive Christians are those who are untaught and unlearned in the Bible, and so they are not wise to the way that Satan works in this world. For this reason, Paul is exhorting the church in Rome to guard themselves from false Christians who have as their aim to lead people astray. That's their ministry, to lead people astray. Paul exhorts us to be innocent as to what is evil, which means we do not have to study, of course, every false doctrine to walk in the truth. So we need to be wise. We need to be wise in truth, the Scripture, in sound doctrine, which is the context of the verse, um, so that we're not carried away by evil. A uh, very similar argument, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And again, there are secondary applications that are legitimate. But Paul said, um, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That is a legitimate biblical principle that you would want to um, help your children to understand that their friends will shape them. And that's something that runs all the way through Proverbs. But contextually, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it's almost identical here to Romans. He's dealing with false teachers who have come into the church, and they are going to corrupt good people unless folks are standing guard. Turn the page. We're going to bring this down to the family and the home. At the same time as it is necessary, number 12, to be wise in to what is good, specifically the teaching which you learned. That's what he's just referencing. Um, in order to keep from error. Likewise, we do not want our children from a lack of instruction on in the things that are right and true to then be naive as to how the world works. So Paul is saying, understand his big picture here, like in 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans 16. So you can easily be led astray if you're being influenced by the wrong kind of doctrine and the wrong kind of teaching. So I want you to be bright, wise, intelligent as to the things that are good, meaning sound, healthy doctrine, and innocent to the things that are wrong, evil, faulty doctrine. Well, you can take that principle and apply it in your home to the raising of your children. And I want you to see how that will fit here. So we don't want our children, again, 13, from a lack of instruction on the things that are right and true, for them to be naive as to how 
the world works. Our children need to know that the allurements that the world system offers are empty and that they do not deliver the satisfaction that they offer any more than the false teacher offers the satisfaction that he offers or she offers. Because there's both, whether it's a Stephen Furtick or whether it's a, a Sarah Young, where they're appealing to the ego of man. Oh, I'm a big shot. God spoke to me today. And let me tell you what God said. And they have these like direct revelations, like God is sending them a text message from heaven. I mean, that's like really dangerous. And every cult is built on that. And those teachers who typically do that, you give them enough time and you will see them totally apostatized from the faith. I gave two examples. Uh, last Sunday, Rachel Held Evans and Jen Hatmaker, who were like cash cows for Lifeway Books, made that company millions of dollars. Lifeway is the Southern Baptist Convention publishing arm. You know, and they were having, you know, these feelings and these revelations and these words from God. And now both of them, of course, they're off Lifeway now because they both endorse gay marriage and they've both apostatized from the Christian faith. That's where Beth Moore is going unless she repents. But so many people in our nation are so biblically ignorant on basic doctrine not Beth Moore. By the way, she makes 40% of all the revenue that comes into Lifeway Books comes from Beth Moore. She's making some people extremely, she's a multimillionaire off the backs of evangelical Christians in the books she sold. But she's doing tremendous damage to the body of Christ. And most people don't see it. And they won't see it until it gets further down the road. I hope and pray she'll get her heart right. So while our children, number 15, do not need to know all the intricacies of evil that the world is offering, they need, do need to know the destructive consequences the world's teachings can bring, or they might be easily led astray. And so that's how in the New Testament you see truth intersecting with error, Paul doesn't tell people, you know, study every jot and tittle of this false teacher, but understand their basic premise and how it differs from the truth. And if you understand that, you'll be able to guard your own heart and others that God has given you to disciple. Same is true when it comes to discipling our children, where you could take that principle, I'll have you to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Both passages in the realm of doctrine, but you could apply it to, hey, your kids need to know these are real evils that are out there. They don't have to know the details of the evil, but these are real evils that they face, and here's what God says about it. And of course, we'll see that exact pattern illustrated in Scripture, because that's how God addresses evil throughout the Proverbs and deals with it. So sadly, number 16, today, many children are being raised in Christian homes where they have not been protected 
That's the other extreme. And they've been exposed to the world such that when they leave their parents' care, they are no longer interested in the Lord. You cloud a child's heart with evil, and you rob of the appetite to know Christ. And that's what happens in a lot of Christian homes where the parents know the Lord. They're not guarding their children's hearts very often because they're not guarding their own. And, you know, sometimes dad is into this video game that is really a lot more evil than he probably realizes, and he's letting his children play with him, and their hearts being, I'm not saying all video games are evil, but most of them probably are in the day that we live in, not to mention they're an incredible waste of time. You know, when you go onto the college campus and you see kids up till two and three in the morning playing video games, and they're barely squeaking through, and some are flunking out, you wonder why. So we are urged in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, being God's ways, so that even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's the context of the phrase, darek, the way. It's used throughout Proverbs to contrast the way of the righteous with the way of the fool, the way of the sluggard. It has nothing to do with train up a child in his, you know, psychological bent. It has nothing to do with that. It's just, that's just sheer folly, as that's been taught for the last 25 years in many of our churches. In fact, just in reading and studying Proverbs, we can learn the balance of how to walk the center line between total naivete and abject worldliness. Throughout Proverbs, the father teaches his son or daughter the positive steps to take in order to keep one's heart on center as they are instructed from the consequences suffered from the poor choices of both the fool and the scoffer. So throughout Proverbs, God looks at the fool, defines him for us. He looks at the scoffer, defines him for us looks at his behavior, looks at the consequences. So you're, you're taking, without exploring the evil, you know, in other words, God can address sinful issues, but never in a deviant way, always in a holy way. So if he speaks about adultery, he does it in a way without having to give the details. But he helps us to see the consequences and the price that's paid. Our challenge as parents is to navigate between the extremes of our day so that with Christ's help, we will find his grace sufficient to direct our children. And that's what we need. We need God's grace because we can't do it on our own. Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We are called to warn our children about the pitfalls of Satan so that when they leave our homes, they are not totally overwhelmed by the evil around them. And so like Daniel and his companions, they can live well in an evil world. Look, there are opportunities all the time where your kids hear about, oh, Joey's dad just left his mom, or um, so-and-so is into drugs right now, or this happened to such and such happened to, you know, and you just take those things that they are going to hear about 
and you relate that to the principle of God's Word. Well, what does God say about that? And how do you suppose they ever got to that point? How do you suppose that Joe ever left Mary? Did he just one day decide, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave Mary? What would God say, kids? How did he get to that point? And you begin to teach them the way of righteousness from the principle of God's Word, so they're wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So in this session, we're going to examine how we, as parents, can give our children the needed life skills, this pattern in the Bible, to stand strong. We will examine critical life skills as they relate to sound doctrine, having a work ethic, the handling of finances, in their ministry, both when the church is gathered and the church is scattered, because really that boils our ministry. We're either in ministry when the church is together or we're in ministry when we're scattered in our various respective places. All right, so first we're going to talk about teaching your child life skills in doctrine. The word doctrine, you know, people say, well, doctrine divides. Well, it does. It divides truth from error, good from evil. And the word appears 45 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's just translated teaching. Doctrine is teaching. And so someone called in on the Bible line recently, and uh, they said, we went to a church, and they said that, well, we don't want to teach doctrine because we don't want to divide our body of Christians. I said, now, I don't know who said that, but if your pastor said it, he doesn't deserve to be a pastor because a pastor is supposed to teach sound doctrine. That's what's going to guard and protect the local church. So in the early years, you are training them in the Bible. You're training them in the Bible. Begin by using a children's Bible and Christian books. Uh, there's a lot of children's Bibles, some that are better than others. I have, I think, about 25 now that I own personally, and some of them are just horrendous. Uh, I have one where um, Moses is floating in a basket down the river as a little baby, laughing. That's what the text says. He was laughing. The Bible says he was crying. So, you know, so some of them just aren't, aren't accurate. Some of them are so um, King James in their language that a child can't understand it, but they can be wonderfully illustrated. And some of them are wonderfully illustrated, but they are not sound doctrinally. This, I still think, is one of the better of the children's Bibles. Now, there's a lot by this title, the Picture Bible. You probably find 15 different publishers. This is the one that is put out by David C. Cook Publications. And it looks kind of like a comic book uh, fashion, and what it does is it takes some of the major Bible stories and summarizes them on a few pages. And each section, like this is Death of a King, and it tells you that this is coming from 1 Kings chapter 1 uh, through chapter 5. So it tells you the section of Scripture that it's covering. But um, I think we went through this with all of our children at least five times. And I'll show you some different ways in which to do that, because this will give them an overview of every single major Bible story 
And one of my sons who went to Liberty University told me, he said, Dad, I was kind of surprised that a lot of the kids that were in my classes who were raised in Christian homes, when a professor referenced a Bible story, they didn't know what he was speaking of. And he said, you know, when we went through the picture Bible, he said, I, I learned the major Bible stories in more than one way, and we'll talk about that. So if you begin to teach your children the Bible consistently from the earliest days, they will see how God addresses sin in a frank way. You're just going to see it all the way through Scripture, because that's the problem of man. It's a sin problem. While it is wrong and unnecessary to expose our children to blatant sin in order to introduce them to the pitfalls of sin, we can simply read the Bible and they will see sin described with, the con- with its consequences. In the early years, from ages two to six, You're exposing them to the major Bible accounts with a goal to introduce them to Christ. That's your goal. You want to, as earliest as possible, without forcing some kind of quote-unquote decision, it has to come from God. But it's much like 2 Timothy 3.15, from your childhood you knew the Scriptures, Paul reminded Timothy because of his godly grandmother and mother. In the middle years... You're helping them to train themselves in the Bible. So you're, you're stepping it up a little bit. At first, you're reading the Bible to them. Maybe you're reading Christian books. And that's really want, where you want your e- emphasis. I'm not saying it's wrong to read, you know, Dr. Seuss or The Cat in the Hat or anything like that. Or, you know, those are, can be very colorful and helpful in teaching a child to read or whatever. But you want the f- overall flavor at night to be God's Word and training them in His Word. But in the middle years, you're beginning to train them to train themselves. The role of an older child, ages 7 to 10, begins to become more participatory as they learn to read the Bible to you and possibly to younger children. So there might have been a time, like in our home, well, I know there was, it wasn't, might have, you know, where I said, okay, Jordan, tonight, I want you to read to Grace Anna, this section from the kid's Bible. So one, you know, he's developing his reading skills, but two, um, it's being embedded in his heart in that he's not just listening, he's reading the text. Uh, So that's one thing that you can do. By these ages, the children's Bible you may use is now being complemented with a real Bible where they read the full text. So sometimes when we were, you know, we had five children, and so they're obviously different ages. So if you're reading to a four-year-old from uh, a section in the children's Bible, just say David and Goliath, which I had, I, I didn't know who David, when, when I became a Christian at 18, I said, yeah, I know who David and Goliath is. The, it's this uh, cartoon character, and the kid's got a dog, and that, <laughs> that's really what I thought David and Goliath was. I had no earthly idea that there was actually a biblical character, a shepherd boy who became a great king of Israel who fought a real giant nine feet six inches tall um, and confronted him there in the Valley of Elah. So what we would do is we'd say, okay, now in the real Bible, uh, it's indexed here and it says, well, this particular um, Bible account, the prodigal son, Uh, We're told it comes from Luke 15, verses 20 to 32. 
So we're going to read it first out of the children's Bible, and then, Jeremy, I want you to read it out of the real Bible, and let's see what details we could pick up out of the real Bible that we didn't get out of the children's Bible, which is a summary. And again, you're, you're, you're building on their knowledge of Scripture, and not just knowledge, but too, you're, you're teaching and training with a view towards application. So in the early years, two to six, you're exposing them, but in these years, you're training them to train themselves. Um, so three, Bible memory can be introduced during these years, where both the verse and its meaning is learned along with the first steps towards spending time alone with God, depending on the child's development. Again, kids develop differently. Um, Some kids read at four, and some children read at eight. And it's not like there's something wrong with them. Just sometimes it just clicks in the brain at a different time. And that's the way life works. So you got to be sensitive to their uh, development, but you're beginning to help them to memorize verses. That's something a child can do even at five or six years of age. And so the great thing about the Awana book, it's a good tool because it not only gives the verses to memorize, but it typically focuses on key words and their definitions. So when they learn Romans 6.23, it's going to say out in the margin, and this is a question the parent can ask, what is a wage? What is a gift? What is eternal life? What is sin? And so you're, you're taking the verse, and I, I tell parents all the time, I know if they, maybe it's a race or a competition, I hope not, but, you know, well, my child learned 15 verses this week. What would be better to learn three where they understood the meaning of the verse than 15 where they didn't really know what they were memorizing? So helping them to understand the meaning is really important at this point, and helping them to spend time alone with the Lord. So again, it's age appropriate. If a child is reading, you might give them the picture Bible to read, or you might uh, give them a hymn that you're teaching them. And music is a powerful tool for good or for evil, as David illustrates with his interaction with King Saul, who's tormented by a demon. Start small where he might read a chapter out of Proverbs each day and progressively introduce study materials that will get them into the Bible. So there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for every day of the month. Certainly, if they're able to read by the time they're the least nine or ten, it would be a good chapter to read every day. And we, our, kids would, our, our kids are adults, and they still read a chapter in Proverbs every day, every one of them. It was just a habit that they developed, but it's a great book to study because it's training a young man through the guidance of his father or his mother, a young lady as well, how to live godly. In the latter years, you are making sure they are sound in Bible doctrine. Proverbs written for especially maturing boys and girls will teach your child how to live wisely by showing him how to live in the world with its evils, while at the same time not participating in the evil it offers. Again, that's, that's the road you're walking. You don't want them to be, oh, wake up one day and I, I've never heard of this stuff before. No, you, you, you want them to be prepared 
So if they're off of the university or they go into the Marine Corps or the Army or whatever it is they're doing, they're not in total shock with what people in the world are doing. And you've addressed a lot of these issues, so they're really prepared. Um, Proverbs will help them to learn about the pitfalls of immorality and its alluring calls and devastating consequences, along with such subjects as greed, slothfulness, diligence, choosing friends, self-control, and so on. So again, you know, the examples are just everywhere. And uh, the sad thing is, is that we have to address issues today that we did not have to address even a decade ago, but we have to prepare these children. So uh, grandparents wrote me three days ago, and I, you know, I, I got more heartbreaking letters. And I, I usually give much more focus and attention to those that come through my website than just, hey, what's the meaning of this passage? And I'm glad to answer as many. I can't answer all the questions that come in. About 10 to 15 come in a day. And they come in from different countries. I give priority to pastors and to church members. But church members, sometimes I don't answer their questions. Not that I don't want to. But when a grandparent writes me from Pennsylvania a few days ago and says, you know, we've got this child and she's being convinced that she needs to change her gender. And her parents are in favor of it. We're the grandparents and we know Christ. We didn't raise our children in a Christian home, but we know the Lord now. And so what can we do? And we get to spend time with her. And it's just, it's sad. Some of the child abuse that's going on in our nation. I don't know how much longer God's going to put up with this. But I'm saying is there's just like the pitfalls of wickedness is everywhere. So you're, you're taking those and you're going to the scriptures and say, okay, this young man, he's 18, and, he, and uh, he was unfaithful, and this young lady now is expecting a baby. And what did that do to his life? And what will it be like when his child is like 15, and he realizes that dad and mom have been married for 13 years? And what's the dad going to say? And I mean, it's just real life. And again, we're all sinners. People fail. But you want to guard your children from as much as that failure and sin is at all possible. During these young years, ages 11 to 18, in age-appropriate ways, you're helping your children see the consequences that sin brings with its pain and trauma and why real joy and meaning in life is found in Christ's way. During these years, you're building a solid doctrinal foundation through whatever tools God may give you to accomplish this. So here's a few things like this is a series uh, done actually originally in the 1950s. Dr. Bill Bright, he's in heaven now, very godly man. It was called The Transferable Concepts. And it was just a, a, a series uh, you know, how to be sure you're a Christian, how to experience God's love and forgiveness, how to be filled with the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit, how to pray, how to help fulfill the Great Commission, just basic Bible doctrine. Great series for some 11, 12, 13-year-old, for someone in college. In fact, I give it to adults. 
This is a series that's done by the Navigators. And again, you know, like, I feel embarrassed now. You know, Campus Crusade has now same-sex attracted staff speaking at their national conference. I said, what is going on? I'm getting ready to put a questionnaire together because we support over 30 crew staff around the world. And are, are you in favor of this stuff? Because if we're going to spend our hard-earned tithe dollars, and you are, we don't want to support you. I don't think any of them are, but it's like there's, there's this new movement that's coming up. It's like I used to be able to tell our young people, well, when you get up to USC or Clemson, you know, plug into crew. That would be a good organization. Not no more. They're all over the map. Now, the guy at Clemson's still good. I know him. I've known him for 40 years, and he's still there. Uh, this is a series called Design for Discipleship. It's put out by the Navigators. And again, you know, Nav Press, they're putting out some stuff now that's like they never would have put out 20 years ago. It would have been against every fiber in their organization would have said we would never print a book like that, but they're doing it. But this is still a great series. Uh, book one, Your Life in Christ. Book two, The Spirit-Filled Believer. Uh, book three, Walking with Christ. Uh, the Character of a Christ Follower, Book 4, Foundations for Faith, Growing in Discipleship, and Book 7 basically teaches you how to study the Bible for yourself. Great series. So you're putting in there tools, what I call inductive Bible study, where it says, read Romans you know, 8, 31 to 39, and what does it say about our security? Note 3, truths from this section of Scripture that tells us that we are secure in Christ. So what that is doing is it's getting them to look up the verses, read the verses, answer some questions, and you're teaching principles of observation, interpretation, and application when you put in their hands good inductive Bible study. This is like great for an 11 or 12-year-old. It's called the Radical Book for Kids. And um, I ordered about 30 of them. They're in the, the bookstore. Very, very well done. And it covers everything from church history. Here's John Bunyan. Um, you know, famous uh, people in the Bible, famous events in the Bible. Uh, sometimes, okay, this, this day is on praising and thanking God. It gives you some psalms to read, how the psalms help us to do that. Another, here's a lesson, lesson 35 on how God counts the stars and calls them by name. And it talks about just the wonder of the heavens above. Most, even adults today, don't know how magnificent the creation is above us. And they've never examined even some of the scientific data, data that we have about the wonder of what God's made, and then it relates it to Scripture. Good, good little book. So you're putting in their hands tools that God gives you. Remember, Bible doctrine, number five, is a reflection of who God is and the plans He has for us. And so some of the critical areas that your children need to grasp would include some of the following. You would certainly want them to understand eternal security and the basis for our assurance of salvation. That's important, that once we're saved, we're saved forever. But the doctrine of eternal security is different from the doctrine of assurance. Could they distinguish that difference? 
And on what basis does God give assurance? And there are three major realms in the New Testament by which God gives assurance to the believer. One, the finished work. Two, a changed life. Three, the inner witness of the Spirit of God. So you're, 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 why is eternal security important? Like it's a major important doctrine that they understand. How to face temptation and our need to confess our sins to God, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, and how to walk in His fullness. Does your... 14-year-old know the hindrances that would keep them from being filled with the Spirit. There are uh, four major commands in the New Testament that express our responsibility to God the Holy Spirit. Um, Grieve not the Spirit, quench not the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, sow to the Spirit. All important that your children, teenagers need to know. Why? Because they need to be Spirit-filled people. And you want them to know that God left them with Himself and the Spirit of God, who's our helper, and He wants to help us to live a godly life, but I can ignore or prevent Him from helping me. You want to teach them how to pray and how to see answered prayer, and what would prevent a prayer from being answered. Um, You want them to understand something about the identification and the development of their spiritual gift or gifts, because everyone has at least one. Some might even have two along with the utilization of that gift or gifts in a healthy local church. So they may not even know there's such a thing as spiritual gifts. Yes. So you could have them take the spiritual gifts course. By the way, I notice a lot of, because I see the transcripts every year, a lot of home educators uh, use the courses in the Institute for Biblical Studies. And uh, they give their child one or two credits for some courses, depending on the length. For instance, the course on bibliology. It's these notes, all just like this, fill in the blanks and so on. It's five, 500 pages of notes I wrote for that course. 500 pages. Your child's going to learn 10 views on inspiration, what biblical inerrancy is and isn't, how the term is misused, how we got our English Bible. Why does the Roman Catholic Bible have more books than the Protestant Bible? And why does the Orthodox Bible have more than the Roman Catholic Bible? And why do we have just 66? And who determined the canon of Scripture? And I mean, these are just like nuts and bolts issues. These are great, you know, things that you can really equip your children with. All right. Um, And then learning how to answer commonly asked questions. By the way, A through G and many more are covered just in the discovery class. So I suggest that maybe a child goes through the discovery class at least twice in your home, once when they're 12 years of age, and then maybe in their junior or senior year in high school. That would be a good target. Because the second round through, as especially as they've matured some, they'll be able to process more of it. Okay, let's talk about teaching your child life skills on work. We've spoken about doctrine, basic Bible truth, but also on work. In the early years, you're showing them how to work, how to work. From the earliest days, when your children are just toddlers, there are natural arenas to teach them how to work. For instance, for a two-year-old, it might be as simple as getting down on the floor and showing them how to pick up their blocks and put them away neatly. Again, you know, you can't say, you know, Joey, pick up your blocks. Joey will probably start throwing them around the room, you know. You've got to get down there on the floor with him, and you're teaching him, you're training him in that process. For a five-year-old, it might be helping dad wash the car 
or work in the yard or helping mom clean the house or make a meal. You say they can work in the yard at five? Sure. Why not? <laughs> when we lived in Texas, uh, my uh, son Jordan was uh, five and a half when he started the process, and Jeremy was about seven. They're 22 months apart. And I had them uh, take, they don't, I don't know, you can even buy them anymore. They're hand clippers. You go around, it used to be in the 60s, they didn't have weed eaters. They had hand clippers. So when you trimmed your yard, you, you hand clipped. And then someone came up with this little battery-operated one where like a power of scissors, and that was really cool. So anyway, they went around, and they had to do all the hand clipping every week. Now, were weed eaters available then? Yes. And, um, but it was a good exercise. And they'd come in, and their faces were bright red from that Texas sun, and they were in a full sweat. And sometimes they'd say, okay, get a drink, but come on, we're going back out. We're not done. We got to finish. And the job's not done. I always tell them until the tools are put up. My son, Jordan, now, he's the vice president for finance for Home Depot and the CEO uh, or the CFO um, of Home Depot. She was there for her last day, and she gathered all the VPs together and said, oh, you know, I thought maybe I wouldn't come in today, but Jordan always told me that his dad said the job's not done until the tools are put up. And, uh, and then she went on to say, I'm here to, you know, close out a few things. So you're, you're teaching them how to work. Kids don't know how to do that. Kids only know how to be entertained, it seems. The culture's value system today is teaching a new generation that work should be avoided and entertaining oneself should be prioritized. Therefore, it is essential early on that we teach our children the value of work. Our God is a working God who completed his work on day seven, and even before sin entered into the world, Adam was given the job to cultivate and keep the garden and to name the animals. Occasionally, you'll hear someone in ignorance say, I even heard a pastor once say, well, work is a curse. No, work is not the curse. Adam was given work before the fall happened. The nature of work changed because of sin. But work is not a curse, and we'll work in heaven. Uh, seven, it is a mistaken, or excuse me, six, we should teach even the youngest in our home of the pleasure that a job well done can bring and how our work can glorify God. You know, and there, there is a pleasure when, you know, they complete a work and say, man, that's such a great job you did. Look at that. Let's stand back and see what we've just accomplished. Whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. Number seven, it is a mistaken notion that considers work as a punishment for Adam and Eve's sin because before the fall, God announced that man was to subdue and have dominion over all the earth. The culture will teach us that our goal is to retire and to be done with work, which may seem idyllic to some. However, God never intended for man to be at his leisure with nothing to do. Now, I know, obviously, some companies or whatever, mandatory retirement or this or that, but God doesn't want his people to retire. You work as long as you are able, 
Now, your job description may change, and some people, we have some people who volunteer around here because they are, quote-unquote, retired, and they're able to refocus and refire their life with more direct work in the kingdom of God, and that's huge. But God never calls us to move to Florida and play shuffleboard. You know, what do you do? I fish for a living. Oh, wonderful. That's really meaningful. You're making a great impact in the kingdom unless I have a ministry of fishing and I bring out a different man every week and I share the gospel with them. And see, that's a different focus. So from the start, we want to teach our children that work is a good thing. In the middle years, you're helping your child to take on their own work, their own work. We, okay, I didn't skip anything, did I? Okay, I thought I heard someone say. The role of a child ages 7 through 10 changes as they become more participatory in work, learning to have jobs in the home and possibly in the community. So like when I became the pastor of this church, um, the elders had just bought a piece of land just before I came. We had $10 paid off the note. It was just about all interest we were paying at the time. And I said, oh, wish you'd waited. It's just not a good piece of land. And they didn't believe me until later on they believed me. Anyway, we had this little building across the street. You know where this new apartment complex is going on? That, that's, that was our land. And way in the back, there was a house. So out of my own pocket, I paid Jeremy and Jordan five bucks a week to come and clean that building. And they vacuumed and they emptied the waste baskets and they cleaned the bathrooms and, and they were earning some money. And I was teaching them how to work and to be responsible such that when they were eight and 10 respectively, a local farmer, we heard he was harvesting strawberries and needed some help. So I said, well, let's go up there. Maybe you guys could work for him. And we brought him up there, and he says, I don't do daycare here, man. (laughs) He was serious. And I said, look, I get it. I'm not here to drop off my kids for daycare. They're going to work, and they'll work for free the first day. And if you have to deal with them where they're disobedient or distracted or anything else, I said, you can farm, and it doesn't cost you a penny. So I hung around for about an hour, watched him. It was my day off, and they came back at the end of the day, of course, hot, sweaty, tired. They put in about seven hours. And that farmer said, those kids work as good as a bunch of adults. Of course, one of the sons ended up marrying the farmer's daughter. That didn't go, it went okay. And, and we ended up, by God's grace, leading that farmer and his wife to Christ. So there's more to it than we, we, we realized at the point. So they should first learn to work in and around the home with increased responsibility in the amount of work that they can take on, including cleaning inside the home and helping to maintain the outside of the home. During these years, they should experience the joy of weariness work brings, learning to toil and to sweat without quitting. If you don't teach your child how to sweat, you've really left a huge deficit in their life. They need to know when I'm tired and I want to quit. Well, here's a sip of water, but the job's not done. And we're going to suck it up and keep on going. 
We need to help them to do that because I don't care what they do in life, whether it's manual labor or if they're an accountant or whatever, they need to be able to translate self-discipline and denial of that I want to quit to keep on going. Each family must decide for themselves what tasks are to be done just because they are a member of the household and then what jobs might be considered above and beyond the call of duty where they can earn money. So like with our kids, we had a chart and uh, there were certain bathrooms that needed to be cleaned every week and rugs that needed to be vacuumed and so on and so forth. And they just did that as a family member. But then there were some things that were above and beyond the call of duty. Now, my boys would always help me wash the cars, but if they wanted to wax the car, I'd pay them for it. That was above and beyond the call of duty. So you've got to decide what that might look like in your home. During these middle years, you are deepening a child's theology of work, showing them work is not an evil to be avoided, but that God has ordained it because it is good and an honorable part of our testimony with the world. Paul writes, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Make it your ambition, he tells the church at Thessalonica, to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So during the middle years, young men and women need to learn that God has commanded that a person who will not work should not eat, so much so that such a one is not worthy of the fellowship of the saved. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we used to give this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Keep reading, for we hear that among you, Some are leading, he says, an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Now, we're not talking about a man who can't work. We help people like that all the time. We're talking about people who won't work, and there's a big difference. Some of you who are faithful to Wednesday nights know two years ago we disciplined one of our members because he wouldn't work, not because he couldn't, because he wouldn't. And Paul says that is something that requires church discipline. If your children are reading Proverbs daily, they will soon learn that the sluggard is full of excuses and suffers for his laziness. Oh, there's a lion out in the road. Sure there is. You know, he always comes up with an excuse. And that his behavior breeds evil. In the latter years, you're helping them to experience the full value of work. During these developing years, ages 11 to 18, you are preparing them to someday leave your home with a godly work ethic and the guidance and strength from God to establish their own way. More than anything else, a good example is important to children so that as they mature, they see everyone in the family works together, dividing the labor and sharing in the joys of its completion. Young teenagers must learn that idleness must not be tolerated, be it with yard work, some home project, or a part-time job. 
During these foundational years, the teenager should have some kind of an ongoing job that produces income so as to be able to enjoy the blessing of giving, the necessity of saving, and the joy of acquiring. When our children were real young in Texas, they had an oatmeal cookie business. And they kind of sold oatmeal cookies door to door. You know, and things graduated with time. But you're ideally getting them to a point where they can either work for themselves. I was eight years old, and uh, it snowed out, and I knocked on Mrs. Cutting's door, and I said, Mrs. Cutting, can I shovel your walk? You want to shovel my walk? She said, there's so much snow here. I mean, it was a blizzard. I mean, we got hammered. It was like two feet of snow. And she said, the snow's almost taller than you are. I said, just let me try. And by the time I was 13, I had almost every house on the street. And we had this system, me and my brothers. And when it snowed, you know, when I was 10, I started my mowing business. And I remember going to one lady's house. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll mow your lawn for free. I asked my dad, there's this old mower. I said, if I can get it running... Will you let me use it? Sure. He said, I got to make sure you're going to do it safely, but yeah. And uh, so I had a mowing business, and uh, I said to this lady, I'll do it for free. And if you like my work and you want to hire me, I'll come back. And if you don't like my work, you don't have to hire me. And if you like my work and you still don't want to hire me, I'll do it for free. Will you let me try? And I found a few people who were just, uh, and they let me do it. I remember the height of my lawn mowing business, I had 11 customers. And that was like a lot of money for a young kid. So you're teaching them how to earn their own money, how to save it, how to tithe it, and so forth. We got to keep going or we're not going to finish. What number are we on? C3, what number? I'm sorry. C5. 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 During these years, thank you, young men and women are learning that employment is necessary to enjoying the pleasures of life. They should not be robbed of this reality by allowing an entitlement mentality. That's what a lot of kids get, you know. Oh, what do you want? Oh, dad will buy it for you. You know, and they almost expect it. By the time they leave, they should know the joy of independence that work brings, the joy of satisfaction that it yields, and the joy that sharing brings as well. We could just spend a whole hour just on those, but I'm giving you some of the scripture and so forth. Teaching your child life skills on handling money. In the early years, you're showing them how to earn money, how to earn money. From the earliest days, as your children are ages four to seven, as parents, we want to give them opportunities beyond those shared family member responsibilities in the home to be able to earn some extra money. The expectations for the length of time and the quality of work performed during these young ages are, at this point, very low, very low. Your goal is to give them an age-appropriate task where they can begin to see the connection between work and pay. These years are to be filled with praise and instruction on doing a job well. That's what God does. He encourages us. The first time your children are given money or earn money, this is the perfect time to start teaching them about tithing. 
Tithing is giving a portion of the money God gives us to the local church He has called us to serve in in a spirit of worship. A simple way to teach your children about tithing is that for every dollar they receive or earn, they should give a dime back to God. I remember uh, a few of my children had worked for their grandfather, and they raked leaves all day, all day long. And um, he paid one of them just $2. Now, I'm not disputing that that was fair or anything like that. He, he paid him $2. This was 30 years ago. And um, that young man said to me, Now, Dad, I know a tithe is 20 cents. I said, that, that's right. I said, are you going to give 20 cents tomorrow? He said, no, Dad, I'm not going to give 20 cents. I said, you're not. Why not? He said, well, Dad, I want to give all $2. He said, I know they're having this mission fund in the church, in Granddaddy's church. He was the pastor. I want to give all $2. He said, I know what it's like for you and mom to raise money as missionaries. And I know how hard it is sometimes for missionaries. I want to give the whole thing. But you see, it started even before that day when he was learning. And you know how proud these little children are when they've earned, if they've earned $3 and they have 30 cents. Or what if a grandparent gives them $20 for Christmas? They immediately think, I'm going to give $2 of that to the Lord. And they get excited about the joy of giving and the difference that they can make. Begin to show them how tithing is God's way to support God's work, both locally and around the world, through his missionaries. The concept of saving is begun during these years. So you're basically teaching your children in three realms, giving, saving, and spending, right? The concept of saving has begun during these years with their first piggy bank, along with the pleasure of being able to buy something. In the middle years, you're helping them, helping your child manage their own money. The responsibilities of a child 7 to 10 progresses as he is constantly earning his own money and learning how to give, save, and tithe God's money. With children this age, they should be learning that Tithing is a part of the worship service, like singing, studying the Bible, and prayer. In these years, they are understanding that they have the opportunity to express their gratitude to God as they participate in His work. And remember, this is like finances is like a major thing you need to teach your kids. Why? Because where their treasure is, there will our heart be also. Children are growing up in a world of instant gratification that makes saving money countercultural to what many of their friends may do, <laughs> what their parents may do. We just reached a new threshold in terms of credit card debt in the United States. We'll just put it on the credit card. Instant gratification. We can't wait. We got to have it now. And the new thing that's not hitting you know, poor people like the payday loans of the last crisis, now there's a whole new loan system online that's hitting the middle class income people, and that just reached $50 billion last week. It's, we're headed for a disaster. 
But that's what people want, instant gratification. Got to have it now. Today, if they want a new game or want to make some purchase, they do not even need to go to the store. They can just buy it online, right? Instantly. Instantly buy it online. And these years, as they are earning money, more opportunities should be given for them to make their own purchases. So you're graduating them. I would discourage parents from giving an allowance because in most cases, it is nothing more than Christian welfare. And it fosters an entitlement mentality, creating a sloppy connection between work and pay. So again, there are, people ask me, oh, do, you, do you believe in allowances? No, I don't. They're a member of the family. And so teach them to be responsible. And there are things that they do because they're a member in this family. But then take the money that you would have given as an allowance and use that money to give them an opportunity to earn, to do some extra work above and beyond the call of duty. Then they are connecting between work brings pay. And with pay comes stewardship in terms of saving, giving, and spending. Um, the scriptural principle of not spending money that has not yet been earned is being learned as they are making their own purchases. Oh, I skipped one, didn't I? Yeah, number eight. Again, some chores should be done just as a contributing member of the family while other opportunities can be given to earn additional money in order to teach them that money is earned from time and hard work. The scriptural principle of not spending money that has not yet been earned is being learned as they are making their own purchases. Look, as soon as they're freshmen in colleges, they're going to be hammered on the university campuses with credit cards. So these young students come in, I mean, they've graduated 23, 24 years old, and they just finished a four-year degree, and they want me to marry them. And again, you know, there's a series of questions they have to answer on the premarital form, even before the first appointment. And one is, how much debt are you in? It's just blowing my mind away when a 23-year-old has $8,000 in credit card debt. See, they, they haven't learned how to... I'm not against credit cards. In fact, I, I tried to help my children to secure a credit card as early as they could, but I was teaching them the principle on how to pay it off in full. Why? Because they had a conviction that you cannot spend money you haven't yet earned. During these years, you want them to make a few larger purchases of something they really want so as to guard them from impulse buying and learning to seek the Lord for His will in all that they spend. I remember Jeremy, he had been saving for this like $90 Lego set. And he just loved Legos. And um, it was an expensive, I mean, it was really elaborate. And when he finally had the money and we went to Walmart, he said, Dad, I'm not sure I want to buy this. <laughs> I said, you're not. You've been saving for so long. He said, but then the money will be gone. I said, yeah, it will be. So you got to think it through. But you see, when they have to save to buy something, they're learning the principle that, again, the whole culture says, if you want it, you can have it now impulse buying. During these shaping years, they are learning to live within their means such that some purchases may require savings for months. In the latter years, you're helping them to manage the family budget. 
as a teenager, there might be some long-term saving goals to be sought after, like buying their first car, and possibly some shorter-term goals, like the purchase of their own clothing. Uh, my children all bought their own cars. Now, I tried to provide work for them where they could earn money. Uh, Jordan had like a window business, and, you know, he... These guys did all kinds of different things. Now, the only one I helped was Grace Anna. <laughs> and I helped her $1,500 on a $5,800 old used Mercedes she wanted to buy. And her brothers understood that. Um, but, you know, they had to put the gas in their car and the insurance on their car. I mean, when are they going to learn this? Do they just like graduate from college one day and it's like, huh, I got to actually pay insurance on this vehicle. You mean I got to put gas in this? You know, and where did they learn this? They got to learn it in your home. These are, this is part of our responsibility. Um, you know, there was some clothing I bought, but then there was some clothing that they wanted to buy. And that's okay. Now, my dad was maybe a lot more strict. Now, he was an ophthalmologist. He wasn't hurting for money. He was like the lead ophthalmologist in all of New England. He made a ton of money. But he said, when you hit the seventh grade, you're buying your own clothing. Okay, I just thought that's what every family did. <laughs> and of course, at Christmas, there would be added little blessings. But I bought my own cars. I mean... I had too many of them. <laughs> I had three and four at a time. Now, don't be impressed. You know, I bought my 1955 Buick Special for $125. <laughs> um, but I had these different cars and, you know, took care of them. But I was learning how to manage money. So I highly recommend that dad or mom or both take the younger teenager through my financial course on money, because this will thoroughly ground them in conviction and in practice on how to handle God's money. During these, and by the way, all of my children went through that course twice. Um, why? Because I, I wanted them to really have it and to own it. During these developing years, 11 to 18, you are preparing them with the reality that someday they will be given leadership over a family budget. And so now is the time for them to make their first budget. So if they have a job, and it may not be a lot of money, but how are they going to manage it? Help them to create a budget. And then show them the family budget. Hey, here's, here's how it works. And here's things that are done annually, quarterly, monthly, weekly. And they begin to get the big picture, the whole financial realm introducing a young adult to the family budget and how bills need to be paid weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually will be great training for your sons and daughters who will someday provide for their own. As they get to watch you manage the family budget, they will see how the Bible's principles of giving, saving, and spending are all brought together. So some other considerations on child training, if we had three or four more weeks Teaching your child life skills and church service might include like finding a place of service at first with their parents. So mom teaches first graders and she has a child in there with them. Boy, they'll learn a lot. Finding a place of service independent of the parents. 
finding a place of service for others they are influencing, teaching your child some life skills in personal ministry. They should know how to invite someone to church, know how to sow the gospel seed, maybe help them to write their personal testimony, how to take a conversation and transition into spiritual things. Help them to know how to harvest gospel seed, learning how to present the gospel to a peer, learning how to invite someone to receive Christ, even helping them to know how to begin basic follow-up, learning how to invite someone to confess Christ in baptism, learning how to encourage someone into a sound church. And then even, again, this almost another course, teaching your child life skills on family roles, knowing and valuing the role of a father. What does God say a father is to be like and do? And what is his role? And the same for a mother. So again, they just don't leave your home and automatically they're adults. There's a training process behind it that we are to take up. Father, thank you that you've not left us clueless. You've given us your word that is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I know any success that Audrey and I had, it was only by your sheer grace and mercy. And I'm so grateful for that. But thank you that uh, even in the midst of things that we could have done better, that you work through our mistakes, even some families listening and who will later listen to this message online, some who feel like they have failed terribly. Even if their children are grown, help them to teach others from their failure. But if they are still in the midst of this process, please remind each one listening that today is indeed the first day of the rest of our life. And we can't unscramble the past, but we can move forward from this day on. So help us to do it well. For the glory and honor of Jesus, we pray. Amen.